0: Good morning, how good it is to gather with you again, to be reminded of the fact that as we begin a new week, surely the Lord continues to be faithful to us as we seek to gather this morning as his people and hear his word. If we have not yet met, my name is Brett, I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Church. Please make a point afterwards, if you're visiting or just recently started attending, to introduce yourself to me. I should be at the back door after our service this morning, would be delighted to meet you and hear how we might continue to encourage you in the faith. This morning, we are going to be considering not the Gospel of Mark, but if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. I'll give you a moment to turn there as it is a smaller epistle. It may take you a few moments to track that one down. An important morning this Morning for sure, as it is every Lord's Day, but particularly this morning as we have the great privilege of celebrating several baptisms this morning. As we rejoice to know not only uh, the 19 new members that are joining with us here at Veritas Church, but three of them, upon profession of faith, uh, being baptized this morning. So, in uh, lieu of our morning, typical morning of Lord's Table, we'll replace one ordinance for the other this morning after the sermon um, participating and rejoicing in those baptisms. 1 John chapter 3. Be considering verse 5, but for a bit of context, let's begin at the end of chapter 2, verse 28. as John writes, And now, dear children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame it is coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see him as he is and everyone who has who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness sin is lawlessness verse 5 you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin Would you join with me in praying as we consider this portion of God's Word together? Our Father, we could not express it any better than we have just prayerfully sung and requested of our great need for you to speak to us, because it is our great confidence and assurance that as we hear your Word read, it is the very Word of God, and it is as it is, Rightly preached and expounded. We know your will and we hear of your ways, and so we ask that you would be faithful this morning to us to speak. And we are those who want to receive. You are the one who breaks into our world, and we are the ones who seek to humble ourselves that we might receive with meekness the implanted word that's able to save our souls. Father, we ask that you would give us great clarity this morning and discerning and thinking and meditating upon these things, that in having this great clarity, we might consider and know and be more assured of the greatness of your Son, the one whom you have sent, both in his mission and his person. Father, help us to lay hold of these things that are so simple, but yet wonderfully profound. The things that are so elementary that our children can memorize and lay hold of them and, and repeat them back and trust in them. And yet, Lord, that we will spend all eternity marveling in and rejoicing in in what you do. So help us, we pray, by your Spirit, for the sake of Christ and your glory. Amen. Well, as we all turn our calendars towards the month of December, as I'm sure most of you have done, we're all also aware that there is one event, one day, one celebration that will slowly but surely overtake every single one of us. Some of us will decorate our houses, some will bake special treats, others will buy gifts or plan special dinners, all because of what is in front of us in this month as we celebrate Christmas. And certainly, celebrating Advent, celebrating Christmas Day, it is not commanded in Scripture or required of any Christian to observe, but it can be a helpful practice a helpful season as we would seek to intentionally consider primarily the coming of Christ. Because at the center of the Christian message is this one declaration. Christ has come and he's coming again. And as good and as potentially helpful as having a season in our calendars to remember and to celebrate the coming of Christ, it does also leave the door open for very real pressing problem. It's a problem of clutter, not necessarily your garage or your living room at this point because you know as well as I do how just in our lives the weeks of December, the weeks leading up to Christmas Day are often so filled with events and traditions and sights and sounds and marketing and all of these advertisements in which we run the risk of missing the point. And I would argue that the real problem is not some sort of culture war that seeks to remove Christ from Christmas, but the willingness of so many Christians to fill their lives with so many other things that Christmas becomes a hindrance rather than a help in considering Christ. Essentially, the surrounding static drowns out the substance. We all know this too well, don't we? So my goal over the next four weeks as we do approach Christmas Day, where we will be gathering on the Lord's Day to celebrate this very thing, is that we would take the next four weeks to help us intentionally pause, to help us consider, to cause our souls to be encouraged in celebrating Christ's first coming and the hopeful expectation of his second coming. And so what my aim is and what our plan is and what we're going to do over these four weeks is to answer one single primary question. The question is, why has Christ come? And we're going to answer it four ways, simply by the Apostle John and how he lays this out. And we'll consider it by answering it four times. This morning, as you probably saw in your bulletin, the answer being, Christ has come to take away sins, verse 5. Next week, we will consider that Christ has come to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. And then the third week, Christ has come (coughs) so that we might live, 1 John 4, 9 and 10. And Christmas Day, we'll consider Christ has come to save, 1 John 4, 4. All of this, it really flows forth from John's great purpose in writing, which if you've read through, you're probably familiar with. But glance back over the page across to 1 John 1. All of these reasons why Christ has come that we will be considering, it flows from John's great purpose in writing as he says there in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John says that he is writing these things so that our joy may be filled to the highest possible extent and that that joy is fueled by And the fullness overflows by, being enriched by, considering that we have fellowship with God and His Son, our Lord Jesus. Fullness of joy and fellowship with God. That is my prayer for us over the next few weeks, and that is really our aim as we consider each of these four questions. And so we'll consider these four passages to refresh our souls, seeking to maximize Our joy in God as we consider the fellowship that we share, not only with God, but with one another as His people. So let's consider this morning just this straightforward verse, chapter 3, verse 5. Remembering that Christ has come to take away sins. And let's do so by just considering two aspects of this. Christ's mission, to take away sins, and His purpose excuse me, his person, being the sinless one. Consider how this verse helps us see primarily the mission of Christ being that of the removal of sin. Before we get too far into this, though, we need to note that John sets all of this off in verse 5 by saying, you know, you know. If you read through this epistle, you'll count around 42 times that John repeats that phrase. You know, and you know, and you know. What that says about Christ and what he is going to say about what Christ has come to do would remind us that it is not new information. He's telling them something that is actually common knowledge. And this becomes even more clear when you zoom out a bit further and see that this statement, it's made within a larger argument that John is making. He's reasoning, according to the context of verses 3 and 4, that it is inconsistent, even inconceivable, that a child of God would be consistent, content with a persistent lifestyle of ongoing, unrepentant sin. Specifically, what he's saying is that you know the very reason that Jesus came was to take away sins. He himself is sinless. Therefore how could you believe and behave in a certain way that undermines this reality? You know this. That, in in essence, is what John is seeking to bring across. He's not saying that Christians are sinless. What he is saying is that Christians repent of sin. Or, to say this way, Christians are uncomfortable, increasingly uncomfortable, with remaining unrepentant sin. Because of the work of grace, there is now a war that is going on within the soul of every Christian between grace and sin. John says, you know this. But further still, in saying you know this, it ought to be a clue for us this morning as we hear this, that what John is about to say is common knowledge among God's people. It ought to be. Which is to say... What he's going to emphasize here is not high-level theological nuance left to scholars. This is basic, ground-level Christianity. This is the substance of what we all ought to know. Okay, John, what is it? We know, first of all, that he appeared. We know that he appeared. Now this word appeared is also a favorite of John's. He uses it several times within this letter. Just look back at verse 2 of chapter uh, 1. This life was made manifest, same word, and we've seen it and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Chapter 2, verse 28. And now little children abide in him so that when he Appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame. It is coming. Chapter 3, verse 2, we just read, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And then skip down to verse 8 of chapter 3. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning The reason the Son of God appeared, which we'll consider next week, was to destroy the works of the devil. To speak of his appearing, it reminds us of something. It reminds us that there was something that was once hidden, but now it's been revealed. There's something that was once unknown, but now it's become known. There was something that was once fuzzy, but now it's been brought into clear focus. John is of course talking about the incarnation of Jesus, God becoming man, taking on human flesh. Now think of how this works itself out in the story of of redemption. God has promised repeatedly that he would send a deliverer to rescue his people and establish his kingdom, but for thousands and thousands of years, his people are just waiting patiently waiting they have the promise but not the person and for thousands of years the plan of redemption is known promised prophesied but it's not yet fully understood or really even fully imagined until Christ appeared This is, of course, what John would write in his prologue of his gospel. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, in saying all of that, have you ever just stopped to consider what a tremendous privilege that you and I have living in our particular day and age? And when I say that, I'm not speaking of all the modern conveniences that we are afforded and that we have, but where we stand, particularly in the timeline of redemptive history. Have you ever just stopped to meditate upon and then praise God for the fact that you live your life illuminated by the brilliance of Christ's appearing? That is where we live. By God's kindness and his sovereign grace, he has determined that we would live now on this side of the illumination of Christ's appearing. You and I, we are not wandering in the desert wilderness, coming to God through a badger-skinned tabernacle on poles. We could be, and we would thank God for that. But that's not where we are. You're not weeping with Jeremiah over the ruins of Jerusalem, longing for the distant hope of that righteous branch that would would come and restore all of God's people. We could be, but we're not. You and I are not living in the 400 silent years prior to John the Baptist where there was a complete famine for hearing the word of God. We dwell on the downhill slope of redemptive history what once seemed so distant, so far off, even so impossible, has come. We are not piecing together fragments of Old Testament prophecy to construct some dimly lit picture. We are those who can say, no, Christ has come. He has appeared, as Paul would write to the Galatians. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as son. He has appeared. But why has he appeared? Why has this great revelation brought forth? Why has Christ come? John, we know he's appeared. Why has he appeared? Well, he tells us he has appeared in order to take away sins. In saying this, We ought to first pause and ask the question what is sin? It may seem very elementary to you, it may seem quite obvious to you, but we need to recognize it's not a term everyone understands, nor a term that everyone accepts. Especially as parents and grandparents, we must never assume scriptural language, we must never assume the gospel. And and in never assuming the gospel, that means we must never assume a definition of sin. And so we always want to distinguish and clarify what is sin? John has actually just told us in the verse prior, verse 4 everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Or our own confession, our own catechism, question 18 asks the question: what is sin? Sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of The law of God. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is a transgression or lack of conformity unto the law of God. And so in saying all of that, it helps us clarify one really, really important aspect of sin. And that sin is ultimately against God. Because sin is a lack of conformity. It is lawlessness unto His law. Meaning this, children, sin is not just simply a list of things that you do or don't do. And you can remind your parents of that too. It's not just a list of things that they do or don't do, nor I. Sin is rebellion. Sin is ultimately rebellion against God's own law. And God's law is a reflection of God himself. It's an expression of his will. It's the revelation of his good design. And therefore, in saying that, we must never detach God from his law. Because when we do that, and we just think of law as a list of rules detached from the God who has revealed them, we end up with a detached understanding of morality. That it is just things to do and things to avoid. But when we remember that it is God's revelation of himself saying, this is the way, walk in it. This is who I've created you to be. Then it helps us remember sin is lawlessness. Sin is a breach, a lack of conformity to God's law. And if we are not convinced, friends, of our legal guilt and lawbreaking, then what happens is we see little to no need for Christ and really the depth of our own offense. It's only the man or the woman that sees and feels their offense, their lack of conformity to God's law that treasures and trusts in Christ because they begin to understand what Christ has actually done when they understand who they are. A lawbreaker. Friend, if you see no great need for Jesus, if you live relatively unmoved by the Christian gospel, then perhaps it's because you think too highly of yourself. Perhaps it is because you're not seeing yourself as Scripture announces, as a transgressor, a violator of God's law, a rebel against God's good design. On clarifying that, notice the point. Notice what John is emphasizing. He wants to make clear that the wonderful work of Christ in saving us from sin is not just a work of purification. It certainly is. Purification, what I mean by that is... Pure, being purified from the guilt or the stain of sin. And that is certainly one aspect of the gospel and what Christ has come to do. But if we only talk about purification, if we only talk about our need for cleansing and use the language of cleansing alone, we fail to deal with a massive and horrific dimension of our problem. That sin is lawlessness. Meaning... Our sin not only brings total defilement of who we are and the stain of defilement that needs to be cleansed, but our sin also incurs a guilt that needs to be forgiven, wrath that must be propitiated, and a falling short of a righteousness that must be imputed. Apart from the understanding of the law, this whole idea of guilt and propitiation and righteousness, it doesn't make full sense. We only have, in a sense, half of the picture. I need to be purified from the stain of sin, but I also need someone to do something about the guilt of my sin, the law breaking, the transgression that I'm guilty of, the wrath that it brings upon me, and my inability to have the righteousness that's required. And friends, the only way we understand the reality of guilt and wrath and unrighteousness is when we keep the reality of God's law and my sin as being a breach of God's law right before us. So I'm asking, do you have these categories clear in your mind? Parents, even as you're thinking about rehearsing the gospel with your children, or as you seek to share the gospel with a co-worker, do you have these categories in your mind? There is a defilement of sin, most certainly, that I feel guilt. There's a sense of shame that I most certainly feel. I put it in terms of unworthiness. I begin to talk about corruption. I begin to see a sense of failure. That is most certainly there. There's the defilement of sin, but there's also the guilt of sin that is laid alongside it. And that is expressed in the language where I begin to talk about how I know that I'm, I'm liable. And I take up the language of Scripture, and I begin to understand that I'm damnable, that I've offended God. There is the defilement of sin and the guilt of sin. And here's why this is so important. Because we live in a culture that tends to be me-centered feeling-oriented, and experience-driven, we then tend to dwell primarily on the defilement of sin because that kind of cuts with the grain. That's kind of the culture that we live in. A me-centeredness, feeling-oriented, and experience-driven causes me to think about me. I don't feel so good. When I do that, I feel bad. That is most certainly a good thing. But also the scriptures would say, not only do you need purification from that thing that you feel ashamed of, you must do something about the guilt of your lawbreaking. And John wants us to know, Christ has come to take away sins. He has come to take them away, to take them so far from us that we are no longer liable, that we are no longer guilty, because he has come to take away the reality of that transgression. How? The psalmist speaks of it in Psalm 103, verse 10, assuring us that he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Friends, this is good news. But don't stop there. Ask, how could this be? How is it that not only the defilement of my sin, but the guilt of my sin is promised to be cast away, to be removed? How is it that Christ actually takes sins away? Does he just simply erase them from his memory? That you stand before him and he just says, what's sin? And winks at you. Is that very assuring? Is it that he just chooses to overlook them, that he turns the other way? Is that he came on strong in the Old Testament to scare us and then to be nice in the New Testament? Is that what happens? It is so important that we are clear on this. John's gospel, again, the prologue, the announcement of John the Baptist, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and what did he say? Behold the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is our clue that the removal of sin and what John is writing here has something to do with who Christ is and how he takes sin away and that he is a Lamb. Or as John would write, In this very epistle, 1 John 2, verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation is a wonderful word. Don't just learn how to spell it. Learn what it means. It's a sacrifice that appeases wrath. Christ's death is the payment for sin Offered to satisfy the good and righteous wrath of God against sin. This is why we love to sing. This, the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. Took the blame. Bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. What we are singing of is a substitutionary atonement. We are singing of propitiation, that Christ has come to take away sin by substituting himself in our place because of our guilt. But before we move on, there's three words that we cannot overlook. This little phrase that John includes, Christ appeared, yes, to take away sins, but he says Christ appeared in order to take away sins. Don't overlook this, because this is a statement of purpose. His appearing directly related to the removal of sin. It was an intentional appearing. It was not an appearing when he showed up, looked around, and said, Is there anything I can do to help? Christ appeared. In order to take away sins. How many modern day necessities or luxuries that we have were discovered as the unintended consequence of something else? Do you know the story of penicillin? Do you know the story of saran wrap? They were not intentional creations, but the unintentional discovery resulting from something else. Brothers and sisters, consider the wonderful comfort in knowing that the work of salvation was determined, it was intentional, that it was not the casual or surprising byproduct of some other reality. He appeared in order to take away sins. Christ appeared in order to deal with the sins of his people. He appeared with the resolved focus and purpose that his entire coming was driven towards this one great mission to take away sins. And so a Christian then is somebody who can joyfully say, God is for me. In his predetermined, deliberate, calculated, and wonderfully gracious purposes, he has resolved to send his son And his son came in order to take away my sin. That is what every Christian ought to be able to sing. And then for good reason, at the top of their lungs, sing this reality. His mission. But we must also consider his person. Which is there in the second half of verse 5. He appeared in order to take away sins and... In him there is no sin. What does this mean? To say that Jesus is without sin places him in a category, and a caliber, apart and distinct from every other human being who ever has lived or ever will live. And as the sons of Adam, we all inherit the guilt and corruption of sin at birth by nature, we are children of wrath. We are born in iniquity, but in Christ, we find something different, not only in why He came, but in who He is. Consider what the author of Hebrews says about the reality of his coming and him becoming our, our priest. Hebrews 4:15: "For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Consider what those 31 words mean. In a life that extended over three decades, our Lord never entertained a thought, never spoke a word, never acted in any way that was defiled even by the impurity of motive. He always honored his father in heaven. He always honored his earthly father and mother. He never lusted. He never coveted. He never slandered his neighbor. He never uttered a single word in sinful anger. He submitted to every commandment of the law of God perfectly. And yet he was tempted to break break each of these commandments and yet never did. But don't stop there. The wonder of his obedience is not only that he did not break the law, but that he also loved his heavenly Father with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength, that he always loved his neighbor perfectly, all with perfect fullness and always with perfect consistency. This is why our confession reminds us in chapter 19 that when we talk about obedience to the law, that the sort of obedience that's required is that which is personal, entire, exact, and perpetual. That's what God requires of you. And it also says that's what Christ accomplished. The sort of obedience that is personal, entire, exact, and perpetual. Christ is the true and better Adam who was put to the test and yet proved faultless. He himself is without sin. Do you see why this matters? The reason is very simple. Jesus lived a representative life. Jesus lived a sinless life. And therefore, it was a life of representative Sinlessness. Our Lord's obedience stands in the place of his people's sin. His law-keeping is counted as the law-keeping of his people who have faith in him. So we have his active obedience where he lays down his life for sin by dying upon the cross, purchasing our redemption. And not only do we have this active righteousness, but we have His passive righteousness, where he lives this life of perfection, proving his righteousness to be sufficient to be in the stead of his own people. And we see this helpfully laid out in a number of catechisms, but we'll pick the Heidelberg. Question 12. Since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. What is required that we may escape this punishment and be again received into God's favor? Answer God wills that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full satisfaction to the same, either by ourselves or another. Next question Can we ourselves make this satisfaction? By no means. On the contrary, we daily increase our guilt. Next question. Can any mere creature make satisfaction for us? None. For first, God will not punish any other creature, that of which man has made himself guilty. And further, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and redeem others therefrom. Fifteen. What manner of mediator and redeemer then must we seek? Answer. One who is a true and sinless man and yet more powerful than all other creatures, that is, one who is at the same time truly God. Why must he be true and sinless? Because the justice of God requires. The same human nature which is sinned should make satisfaction for sin. But no man being himself a sinner could satisfy for others. Last question, why must he be at the same time God? That by the power of his Godhead, he might bear in his manhood the burden of God's wrath. And so obtain for us and restore us to righteousness and life. Friends, what that is saying is that in order for your assurance of forgiveness to be sure, not only must it be a sinless one, it must be a sinless man. And it must be the eternal God-man who does that. Christ has come the God-man, to take away sins, and he himself is sinless. You know that he appeared to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. Church, is your soul nourished? Is it enriched by this wonderful thought? Our sin is lawlessness, but Christ Has satisfied the demands of the law by becoming our sinless substitute. John Newton captured this very thought when he wrote the hymn, Let Us Sing, Let Us Love and Sing in Wonder. Some of you may know it. There's two lines that I particularly love in this hymn Let us love and sing in wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed. The law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He's washed us with his blood. He's brought us nigh to God. Third verse. Let us wonder grace and justice. Join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. What a wonderful image that Newton took to pen and paper. Justice smiles and asks no more. Why? Because Christ has hushed the law's loud thunder. Justice is satisfied. And we could easily say not only does justice smile and ask no more, but what we can say is that the Father smiles And ask no more. Because justice is not just some obscure morality that exists in the universe. Our God is the God of justice. So what Newton is saying is that God looks upon his people. The Heavenly Father looks and smiles. He asks no more. Because Christ has satisfied the demands of the law. It is this unique privilege given only to God's people. That they can rest their heads soundly on their beds each night, knowing that despite the day that they have had, justice is satisfied. Do you believe that? That in Christ, on your worst day, the Father smiles and asks no more. That is revolutionary, and that is the gospel. This is the promise extended to each and every one of us this morning. Friend, if you can't say that, if you lay your head down on your pillow and you are constantly looking to the reality that you know you have broken God's law, not only are you aware of the guilt, but you are aware of the impurity that you yourself feel, the gospel announces this morning and Christ preaches to you this morning through his own word that it does not have to be that way that he has come to reconcile sinners, that you too can have the absolute assurance of knowing that the loud thunder of God's own law is hushed because Christ himself has satisfied it. The way in which you know that and the way in which you experience that is by repenting of that very sin and law-breaking and believing in what you've just heard, that Christ has come to take away sins. Instead of wallowing... In our hopeless situation, groaning under the weight and the curse of sin, Christ has come to carry away this tremendous guilt and pressing weight. And at the same time, instead of hiding our sins, instead of justifying them away by our weak excuses and covering them with some form of hypocrisy, we can then gladly repent of them and believe in Christ's willingness and his ability to, to take away sins. This is tremendously good news for one type of person. The type of person who is convinced that they are a sinner. If you're not convinced of this, this is why you're yawning, wondering when it's time to go, and why I keep rattling on. But when you begin to see yourself as the people who just chuckled and said amen, you know that this is wonderfully good news. This is tremendously good news for sinners because our greatest need has been met by a Savior, and His name is Jesus. Christ has come to take away sins. Our God and Father, we rejoice this morning, and we look to You this morning with full joy and humble hearts hearing of this promise of grace, hearing of this promise of mercy and forgiveness. Lord, we are certain of two things. We are great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. So, Father, we ask that you would strengthen us by your own Spirit, that we might know the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. We ask for the fullness of joy that comes by knowing our fellowship with you, our God, our Father, and your Son. Do this, Father, as we are often so weak, we are often so needy, we are often so forgetful and so stubborn. Do this for us in your kindness. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.